HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we're speaking to Barton Seaver, who's for many people, the soul and the iconic expert on American seafood and fisheries and sustainability and many aspects of cooking, all of the above. And we wanted to catch up with him and see what he's doing now, how he got to where he is, and what's on the table for next. Sounds great. So Barton, I have known you over the years and been amazed at you over the years. And I think I may have said to you, without putting any pressure on you, that you're probably the most rhetorically gifted person I've ever listened to, other than perhaps Barack Obama, and he has speechwriters. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. But I wanted to hear a little bit about how you got to where you are. So if you don't mind, let's start a little bit at the beginning, how you ended up sure. being this champion chef in Washington, D.C. not so long ago. It was 14 years ago, actually, that I stepped away from restaurants. I can't believe that. I still call myself a recovering chef because it, it takes that long. I think I always will be. But thank you so very much for that very kind introduction. Uh, those, those words are very much appreciated, if if not false. Um, but uh, so I was born in a very multi-ethnic neighborhood in Washington, D.C., where food was the center of culture. Uh, this was Eritrean, Ethiopian, and El Salvadorian people, as well as the black population of D.C. that I was growing up around. And especially those immigrant populations, they had been fleeing civil unrest in their countries, uh, whether the Sandinista conflict or the, the civil war in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And when people flee for their lives as refugees, they take with them their dignity, their traditions, and their cuisine. And you know so much, and, and so much more, of course, but so much of who they are and how they sort of identify themselves in their new land, but also sort of bring with them those traditions from the old, 
comes to bear at the table, right? And, and just food became this ultimate expression of, of who they were, who they are, who they wanted to be. And what an incredible, incredible crucible for me to be part of, to witness, to see this evolution in real time, but also to understand just the power of food, that deep, elemental, fundamental power of food to explain, describe our mythologies as people, who we are. And so from a very early age, just the, the table was that crucible. And I also got to explore all sorts of crazy ingredients from carambola to goat meat to this heady spice aisles of Eritrean Ethiopian cuisines, et cetera. Things that were just not available in grocery stores in America, where the typical sort of settler American colonial experience was like, you know, basil, fresh basil was like this innovation, right? <laughs> when I was growing up as a kid. So the idea that uh, I was exposed to so much sort of set the tone that I would use food to be an explorer of so many things in our world, as I've done in my career. I lived and worked all over the world. I worked as a fisherman in Africa for a while, which was so very much fun and so very much enlightening. Got to work with Jose Andres, the incredible chef, uh, a man that is a celebrity in the world because the world needs to know who he is and what he's right? doing. Deservedly um, so. <laughs> yeah, deservedly. You know, there's people like Carla Hall. There's people like Jose Andres that you're like, thank God the world knows who you are because we are better for it. So I, I got very interested in sustainable seafood as a chef, just because seafood is just such an interesting ingredient category, right? Chicken, white or dark? Beef, grind cut, braise cut, dry cut. Seafood? <laughs> got, whoa, this, this incredible ecosystem of opportunities and options is opened up to us just by that one word. And so it became my passion to explore that ecosystem through the products that were available and relationships that I formed with the men and women and others who were you know, bringing that food to our table. So sustainability became the hallmark of my restaurants. And I then had opportunity to step away from restaurants and I became an explorer for the National Geographic Society, which is uh, as sexy of a job as you can imagine it being. And I went out into the world with this idea, uh, sort of as we had it early on in the sustainable seafood movement, which was, hey, people, people, we got to fix seafood. There's so much wrong. We're doing so many things, so many harms we are visiting upon our oceans. And I went out into the world, certainly, and saw much of that. But I also saw so much going right. And so many examples of how we can coexist in harmony with ocean ecosystems and through marine food systems really create a sustained presence upon our oceans, upon our shores. And so as much as I sort of went out into the world to fix seafood, hey, people, we got to fix seafood, I then began to see that, hey, actually, there's an opportunity to maybe use seafood to start fixing people and some of the other big issues that we face, whether it's from economic crises and opportunity development, whether it's from the acute nutritive and public health crises we face, also to the broader range of environmental sustainability that we're after, which is you know, climate change, et cetera. And seafood is actually a tool that we can use to begin to address and to gain positive outcomes in so many different ways. Amazing. And when you were this... Uh this lively exploring child in and out of people's homes, in and out of people's restaurants. What did your parents think? <laughs> so my mom passed away when I was in high school after a long illness. And my father left his own parenting devices, did a wonderful job. Dad, I love you. Thank you for all that you did for us. Uh, <laughs> Dad was, was a pure academic. Uh, in the world. You know, he wanted to be an industrial chemist. He's a mathematician, statistician. 
he sees the world through the academic realm. When I decided not to go to college and when my brother dropped out of college, my dad didn't really quite know what was going to happen to his boys. Right. Where did I go wrong? my dad, I figured out okay. And uh, my brother won a Grammy and uh, he was a traveling rock star for a while. And so dad has come around to like seeing that, uh, yeah, all is well in the world when people authentically take their own path. (laughs) That is so great. There's some fascinating story about how you ended up in your first restaurant. Could you just remind me? Because you were like 11, 12 years old starting your own restaurant. (laughs) Uh, which story was that? You had sort of a meteoric rise. Did you ever work for anybody else before you worked for yourself? So I went to Culinary Institute of America, and then after that had opportunity to work at the school teaching in a graduate position for two years in meat and fish, and then worked for a couple of great chefs from Stephen Santoro to Dan Kish. And then I worked for a couple of great chefs down in DC area, David Scribner and Carol Greenwood, who she is just an alchemist and taught me the beauty of cooking over live fire. Uh, On all seven of my restaurants that I opened, I always cooked over live fire. It's just the the sexiest way to cook when the heat itself becomes an ingredient in the final dish. But Jose Andres was really the biggest influence, I would say, in so many ways. And I worked for him at his flagships, Ajaleo, and when Mini Bar was really on its rise. And I had opportunity to step away from Jose at a very early age. And 24 years old, I was handed my first restaurant kitchen, uh, Cafe St. X in Washington, D.C., a little neighborhood bistro. And at 24 years old, somehow I saw through the ego that young men and young people tend to uh, to have cloud their vision and saw that it was really my duty to, uh, I made it my mission to have the very best hamburger in D.C. and the second best roast chicken in all of D.C., and I say second best just because Polena restaurant and what Chef Frank Ruda was doing, I was never going to be better than him. But I was like, hey, I mean, you know, if I could run, even run her up to that, that would be great. And so I committed myself to these basics. And once I really got those right, uh, found that then I had earned the creative freedom to go do other more interesting things, more interesting, quote unquote, uh, with the menu and really begin to explore my creativity. Uh, but I always felt that I was grounded in the realities of, hey, the business, you got to get people yeah. to come. And then you got to get them to come back, especially in a small neighborhood setting. And that was always my commitment. And, you know, that was that sort of translated also into my commitment with my vendors and the sustainability aspects. Like I I wasn't trying to reinvent anything. I was actually just trying to participate responsibly within the systems that were already in place. And that humility to really act as a cog in the wheel to make these things better was really the foundation of what I found myself doing henceforth. How did you decide to take the leap, essentially, away from the day-to-day of a restaurant with all the positive and negative energy that surrounds that and start to be um, essentially an evangelist and author? So I had a partner who was, um, his moral compass was not pointing in the same direction as mine was. I met my now wife in the restaurant. She came in as a customer and I accidentally fed her a hazelnut to which she is deathly allergic Long story, we're married uh, and have been happily so ever since. And and, uh, and she yeah, has not is... yet died died of a nut allergy. Good. No, no, no. I'm, I'm very careful now. I know it's at stake. I love her so much. Sorry, Carrie, for that first incident. But um, I had put so much of myself into those restaurants, so much blood, literally, so much sweat, literally, so many tears, literally, into those restaurants that it was so very hard to walk away. But I, I really give my wife, now wife, so much credit for having seen the me in the meteoric rise that had occurred with these restaurants 
And she was not caught up in the ego or the shine of the awards and the, the magazine articles, which are, are flattering and wonderful. But I always felt that those were coming because I had something to say, because my food had a point of view and people were getting that. So she was really she that convinced me that there was a lot more to me than just this restaurant. And I, I walked away you know, regretfully, uh, leaving behind so much that I had worked for, but also with the confidence of love and acceptance that comes from an incredible relationship that she just said, go forth into the world and we're going to do this together. And I also had the opportunity to become an explorer for National Geographic. That's not like a, that's not a step backwards ever. No. So, uh, <laughs> And then, and then publisher came to me and said, Hey, we want you to write a, two books. And I was like, wait, what, what, what? It, 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 it never even occurred to me that I would have something cohesive to say, you know, I always knew that I had a message behind my food and what I was doing, but I, but I thought that that was necessarily on the plate, not in the word. And a woman named Lee Ambrosi, Leanne Ambrosi, uh, who just had so much faith and confidence in me, uh, and really kick-started that entire path and uh, a career that I'm still on. So in, in the process now of writing book number nine, can't believe it. Isn't that incredible? I think I have seven of your books. I looked this morning and fascinating. So you, you became an explorer for National Geographic, which is way cool. I think that's a detail of your life I didn't actually know, but I, I'm even more impressed. And then you found your way to Harvard. How did that happen? For the yeah, boy who didn't yeah. want to go to college. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about the day that I got to call my dad, a Yale graduate, uh, you know, who, as I explained earlier, was sort of dis majorly dismayed that uh, his boys hadn't followed in a, a sort of understood trajectory. Uh, and when I got to call him that day and be like, hey, dad, I got a job, like a real one, dad. And, uh, oh, yeah, where? Oh, you know, Harvard. Um, which is awesome. It was a guy named Eric Shivian and Dr. Doctors Eric Shivian and Dr. Aaron Bernstein at the Center for Health and Global Environment uh, through a, a relationship formed with the ever delightful Kat Finley, uh, who was there, Kathleen Frith, I believe you knew her at, at the time. She's, uh, she was the director of the Health and Sustainable Food Program. And I had partnered with her through an effort at National Geographic. We had built the Seafood Decision Guide. And I had been looking around and I'd seen so much negative about seafood, right? Oh, it's got methylmercury in it. Oh, it's got toxicity. It's unsustainable. We're emptying the oceans. All of these very negative messages. And there wasn't really any conduit or any, any sort of well-recognized or aggressive tactic to say, yes, but there's so much right with seafood. Seafood is so important for nursing and pregnant mothers. Uh, it is so important as we age. It is so important as we grow as children. It's so important as a global economic powerhouse. It's so important as a sustainable center of the plate protein opportunity. And just that positive messaging wasn't there. It wasn't encapsulated in anything that just went out in the world and said, eat seafood, eat these seafoods. You're going to be good for it. And we're all going to be better because of your choices. And so we built the seafood decision guide that operated on here. It populates, here's all the sustainable fish you can choose if you're an aging male and you're concerned about you know, heart disease and the you know, cognitive retention and macular uh, you know, vision retention, et cetera. Great. Boom. You click that little icon and it populates the things you should be eating. Please go do these things. 
and that sort of messaging uh, we put out there. And so we needed the very best of, of the best in terms of partners, as Nat Geo tends to get. So we went to Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, we went to Monterey Bay Aquarium for there. Uh, we went directly to the FDA uh, for toxicity levels. And so we began to actually enmesh all of these things and built this tool. And that was the foundation of the relationship with Harvard. And then when Kathleen left her position, she suggested to Dr. Eric Shivian and Dr. Aaron Bernstein that uh, I take in, take on uh, in that role. And so I moved up to Boston with my wife and tried to make sense of the academic world, which I had never been a part of before and had an incredible uh, run of it for about six years. We were there and our, our research and work looked at sort of how do we use seafood as a tool to achieve positive public health, economic, and environmental outcomes? What are the anthropological sort of systems thinking blocks that we can address that engage people to see seafood as a positive action that they can take? Not just sustainability in a cover your ass kind of way, a do no harm kind of way, but really how do we use seafood as this tool to create good? We'll be back with Barton Seaver in just a moment and talk more about his gift for storytelling. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Barton Seaver. You had a unique ability during those years that you were sort of centered in Boston to make seafood sexy for young people. And I mean, it was sushi. Sushi is one thing. People have always thought sushi was sexy, but fish and seafood as something they, sh they should eat and do eat was not sexy. But you were so cool about it that all of these kids, we would run all these events and all these kids would come and listen to you and go home and cook haddock or something. <laughs> know what they did. But um, it was very energizing for a lot of people. Oh, thank you. And well, I don't make seafood sexy. Seafood is sexy to begin with. I'm just pointing out the beauty and the appeal that you have henceforth not yet seen. That's all. <laughs> it, it's really, you know, and thank you for that, Louisa. But the context of my work is that ultimately I'm a storyteller. I'm not a story creator. Uh, I am just I have worked very hard to become a good storyteller to, to understand. I'm not going to take credit for making seafood sexy. Seafood is sexy. I'm just pointing it out to you and sort of taking the blinders off your eyes to understand. Ooh, <laughs> haddock. <laughs> Where have you been? 
I'm a storyteller, ultimately. I, I don't write the stories. I just, I, I tell them. Uh, I'm a translator in that I understand how different buckets or sort of different professions or different scopes of interest act around seafood. And I'm, I'm just sort of a, a bit of a nucleus. And I understand why that people are all talking about the same thing when it comes to seafood. They're just using different lexicons, whether it's public health, whether it's economics, whether it's environmental sustainability, whether it's cultural and anthropological heritage, et cetera. And I'm just sort of in the middle understanding enough about all of these players to be able to say, hey, here's why it matters. And then I show up to an audience and learn from that audience what matters to them. That's always been my tact around environmentalism is I'm not going to talk at you until you until you see things the way I see them. I'm going to listen to you and then use your own words to repeat back to you why the oceans, why seafood already matters to you. And in that way, I think, you know, one of the sexiest things that we can do is to listen, is to make people feel seen and heard, right? To actually show up. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the greatest act of love is to give our attention and our affection to. Uh, and in that way, that that's kind of the method that I've used is, hey, audience, what's important to you? Awesome. Let's talk about that in the in the focus with the focus of seafood. That's why I believe that it's been effective. So and hey, Haddock, <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> well, as a bona fide New Englander, I also understand that Haddock, Cod and all those things are are endangered right now. And we're aggressively worrying about how do we keep the seafood alive here in New England. You're up in Maine, another another good place for a lot of seafood and a lot of a lot of lobsters, a lot of fish, a lot of everything. Where do you think we are now? Are you more worried or less worried? I am less worried, although I am worried about more things. <laughs> I guess, but I am less worried about the overall. I like that idea. Okay. Yeah. You're sort of here uh, disseminating your worry. So it's kind of more yeah. diluted because, yeah, I like D that. Diversifying yeah. my, diversifying yeah. my yeah. concerns. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> it, it gives me greater opportunity to stay up at night. You know, if I feel like I've answered one question, it's like, oh no, but something else will wake me up at two in the morning. It's fine. We're good. I, I have, I have a good, good roll call of those that I can call upon. So much of what we're dealing with now is is really understanding that ingredients through the lens of food systems. And you know, I think here in New England, so many of the factors that we're dealing with now are not so much environmental. We actually have really sustained, sustainable fisheries. We have really sustainable management systems in place that act upon those fisheries to keep them within sustainable bounds. We have a fishing community that, for all of its grumbling, is actually sort of the driver of a lot of sustainability and a hands-on participant in it. And as well, sort of the on the front lines of it, in fact, that they are the first ones to feel the brunt of any changes, both positive and negative, mostly the negative. So I think we have sort of a ripe ecosystem in a way to really accomplish what we need to accomplish. However, you're acting within a global marketplace. Seafood is the most traded global food commodity, more than double corn and soy combined. It is this radically difficult, incredibly intricate global system. And so even though New England haddock or cod or pollock or cusk and hake, for example, are doing fine in their own ways year after year, it's really the fact that North Sea cod and haddock are doing so well and those fisheries are so massive 
that we can't compete on an economic level with what's coming Mm -hmm. in good quality, certified, sustainable products. So it's not that we're doing anything wrong here or that they're doing anything wrong there or that either isn't worth supporting. It's that, well, when by the time we meet in the middle at the fish counter, the choices that are available to us are not always the choices that most effectively invest our consumer dollars in the systems that we want to see supported here in New England. And there's some revolutionary folks out there, Jared Auerbach, I mean, among so many others, so many leading mm-hmm. chefs that have pioneered in the Boston and New England areas towards these sustainable marine food systems. Too many to mention here. I honor and admire all of you. So I guess the sort of the tactic or the conversations that we need to be a part of with seafood have changed. You know, at first it was like, hey, come to my seafood seminar and learn all about seafood sustainability. And now it's like, hey, let's go to the public health forum and talk about why this matters. Hey, let's go to the food justice forums. Let's go to the mayor's office and talk about why seafood matters. Hey, let's go to the UN and talk about, well, your sustainable development goals, all of which basically are dependent upon creating economic empowerment for women. Great. Let's talk about how seafood is a direct tool to accomplish that. So it's sort of, you know, moving seafood back from the topic at hand to being the tool at hand to achieve the topic. Mm-hmm. And to unify all those perspectives. So it isn't just the fishermen catching the fish and people buying the fish, but the whole supply chain, the threats to the supply chain, the disruptions to the supply chain. Fascinating. Just fascinating. I mean, a good example of this, you look at the work of like healthcare without harm has done mm-hmm. for so many years. A great organization you know, out of Boston, big presence there, training doctors and healthcare systems to understand that, well, poverty is relative to the amount of jobs and economic opportunity. Poverty is one of the principal drivers of negative public health outcomes. Great sustainable food systems that create jobs and reinvest money within those economies actually help to alleviate poverty, help to alleviate you know, food deserts, et cetera. It's sort of way before you even get to the ingredient, there's an entire system at play here. And so if doctors are prescribing or even just buying locally produced food, when they go down to the cafeteria for lunch every day, you know, whoa, hey, here's this very beneficial circle that we're creating. So it's like doctors uh, don't take classes in sustainable marine food systems. But doctors sure are participants in them and can utilize them to achieve the outcomes that they're already struggling and trying so hard and dedicated their lives and careers and passions to, right? So it's about that. It's about sort of broadening the ocean of people that are engaged in this topic. And that's why this is so much fun and has kept me so interested for so many years. So I want to ask you about, I'm sort of current with your thinking through the last book that I have, which I think is American Seafood. And I may be a couple of books behind, but where's your mind now? What are you, what are you focusing on now? Well, thank you for that. So American Seafood was a book that was, it was written. It's a history of the American seafood industry as told through a culinary mm-hmm. and anthropological sketch of every species, almost every species landed in the United States, a deeply historical document, deeply visual. And it was meant to say, Hey people, here's why seafood matured so that we can decide that it matters still and that it is the tool by which we will achieve these other outcomes. Uh, The next books, the the next work now is really taking that conversation to, hey, here's why seafood matters now and will matter in the future. 
and use the word earlier evangelist. And that's kind of how I describe myself is as a seafood evangelist. I'm trying to get more people across all demographics to eat more seafood more often for positive public health, environmental and economic outcomes. And so now it's, well, whether it's consulting with large international hotel groups, large international food service groups that are on campuses and in corporate dining, in hospital healthcare, food service, et cetera, um, or whether it's just generally sort of evangelizing the cultural values of fisheries and what they contribute to our society, specifically around aquaculture. Now, I started off years ago as being a banner waving, it's farmed and dangerous, don't eat it, you know, anti-aquaculture chef. And and I, do. I don't regret. No, and I remember yeah. that. And I, I remember saying to myself and maybe to a lot of other people, compared to what? <laughs> compared to what is it dangerous? Yes. Well, this okay. is this is where I have evolved my thinking. And while I don't regret the passions that led me to say those accurate things in the past, I acknowledge that I was saying them without the larger context of understanding, well, okay, seafood, yes. If we look at it through this very acute lens of is it sustainable or is it not through these very acute biological metrics, well, then we miss the broader picture of, well, how, how do we use seafood? Well, in this country, it's the center of the plate protein, right? So let's measure it against beef, pork, chicken, lamb, veal, turkey, and goat, the things that we actually eat in this country to the tune of 200 pounds per person more per year than we eat of seafood. And when we do so, we begin to see seafood that basically across five very important environmental metrics, land use alterations, how much rainforest is plowed under to feed fish versus cows or pigs or chickens, land use alterations, freshwater use, greenhouse gas emissions, feed conversion ratio, how much food in to how much food comes out, and um, greenhouse gas, freshwater, antibiotics, land use alterations, and feed conversion ratio. So across all five of those very important metrics, seafood uh, comes out basically on par with the best of land animal proteins. And this is not to say don't eat land animal proteins. I, I'm not at all. I, that's a very vital and important part of responsible agriculture, as well as part of our culture. So I don't diminish the importance of that in our diets, just to say, hey, when we look at seafood as, you know, in that larger context, seafood just has a fin up in the sustainability game. So we should be investing some of our intentions and our consumer dollars towards using seafood as a solution to some of those issues. I'm going to ask you just to um, explain one term. Sure because not everybody understands it, which is the conversion ratios. Sure. So feed conversion ratio, FCR, FIFO, fish in, fish out, a couple of acronyms, <laughs> all part of the alphabet chowder, I call it, of sustainability. This basically means how much food are we dedicating, how much land and food are we dedicating to feed a fish in order to eat that fish. And when that equation is significantly negative, in its outcome, meaning we've dedicated how many hectares and how many pounds of food to get just one pound out, well, we have to ask ourselves, is that the highest and best use of those resources back through that chain? And you know, in the past, with aquaculture in particular, the answer was those ratios were very, very high mm -hmm. to the point where it's like, well, we really shouldn't be plowing under any of the rainforest to plant soy. Uh, we also shouldn't be capturing a whole lot of anchovies and grinding them up to feed to salmon just to get a little bit out. However, those ratios have changed, that technologies have changed significantly to the point where now those feed conversion ratios are very low to the point where, wow, those equations really make a lot of sense. 
especially when you look at the jobs created, the technologies created, the regenerative and circular economies that we're able to now participate in. For instance, we're now feeding fish, like farmed salmon, instead of feeding them just wild-caught anchovies, we're feeding them now uh, fermented algae oils that completely replace the fish meal and fish or the fish oil intake. So we no longer need those omega-3s. We're right. feeding them yeah. now uh, fermented sugar cane waste, creating a circular economy there. So that it, it you know, one thing that, that's so incredible about aquaculture, it's only a 60-year-old industry in terms of a global commodity product. And like the last time we got to invent a food system was 10,000 years ago. And, and we are now witness to and architect of the creation of a brand new food system in the form of aquaculture. And we can do so with intention, with, with our intention that it will achieve, that this new food system will achieve these X, you know, these outcomes, A, B, C, D, E, whatever it is. And so I see aquaculture now as this tool to really develop that next generation of conversation about why seafood matters. And that's where a lot of my work's doing. You know, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that the suspicion with which people held aquaculture to begin with has also been part of the pressure on it to essentially clean up its act, to become more responsible, to understand this, to change, that it just being able to raise a fish and put all the inputs in wasn't good enough. So the idea that instead of grinding up the anchovies and sort of, you know, essentially emptying the seas around Chile, we're looking at algae, we're looking at seafood. I think that that is kind of a a result of the kind of pressure and criticism that people like you put on the system at the early stage. So I want to give you some kudos for that. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I think the uh, the flip side of that coin is that those of us who were so vociferously and passionately advocating for those positions, we now see it as our responsibility to now kind of extend a hand to the industry that said, okay, mm -hmm. we hear you. Here are the changes. Oh, whoa. Oh, okay. This is an industry in flux that has incredible capacity for change and innovation. Oh, okay. Well, maybe there's still a few things wrong, but I'm really liking what I'm seeing. I'm really liking the pace and scope of innovation. And whoa, if we don't support this train now, it's going to be so far ahead of us in the future. And you know what? It needs us and it needs consumers. It needs your listeners not to just say, oh, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm on the aquaculture train now, but at least to give it a second approach, to give it uh, an opportunity to learn where it is now not to judge it on where it was 20 years ago. And to be clear, there's still a lot of very bad aquaculture out there, just as there's a lot of very bad agriculture out there, right? Just because there is bad does not broad brushstroke paint the entire industry as guilty anymore. Uh, and so I think we owe it to the industry to look anew at the possibilities that it presents. No, oh, I'm totally with you. It's interesting because I remember, let's say it was 10 years ago, people would go into a restaurant and they would order salmon and they would say, is it farmed or is it fresh? Well, I know a little bit about this and I know that wild salmon is hard to come by. Most salmon that people were eating in restaurants was farm raised, but nobody knew enough to ask the questions beneath that. Farmed how? Farmed where? Farmed by whom? And I think now there's a far more nuanced, sophisticated, positive approach that people need to take to farm fish. 
which makes it harder. And that's yeah. not what people are looking for in lives. You know, no one wakes up in the morning. Well, very few people wake up in the morning and say, you know what I need today? I need more complexity in my life. Right. <laughs> you know? I, need to, I need to interrogate my server on seven different levels. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> that's yeah. that's so for sure. None of us are really looking yeah. for that. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, that's what it, what it requires of us. Uh, but the upside is that the, the upside outcomes for us are very real and are present and are possible. I'm curious because I've been reading a lot about the heat in the waters off of Florida. What's the impact of that going to be like? Do you have any sense of that? Are we losing a lot of, you know, the oceans are warming. They seem to be warming particularly Florida South. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, that's not an ecosystem that I am I, I'm intimately familiar with. I visited mm -hmm. plenty of times, but, you know, we understand that sustainable seafood started off as this conversation about like, hey, our actions have this very direct impact on the number of salmon per se, in the water, right? And now we're talking about our actions have this very direct impact on the water. And whoa, uh, wow, okay. Now we're in a very different conversation with very different scales of potential outcome. You know, we're talking exponentially increased outcome when you start talking about the disruption or outright destruction of entire ecosystems, such as coral. The Gulf of Maine, very relevant to many of your listeners, as it's our backyard, uh, is warming faster than 99% of other bodies of water on the planet. Not in so many acute instances like Florida being hot tub, but over you know a decadal approach, we're looking at a radical change to the overall ecosystem. When the waters just heat up just like that, yeah, those creatures, you know, coral can't move. It doesn't have the opportunity to just spawn and reset hundred miles up the coastline or off the coast, et cetera. So I really do fear for the immediate aftermath and outcomes of that, which can be absolutely mm -hmm. catastrophic for the entire ecosystem. But also I would say to people, the shock and the awe and the horror and the terror and the anger that I hope you feel about such news, I hope you apply that same vigor of passionate interest to the slow-moving catastrophes that we're seeing in places like the Gulf of Maine. And fair point. We need to give our intentions and affections equally, no matter if it's an acute instance or if it is a slow-moving one. And I woke up the other day and I listened to an NPR story about glacier uh, people up in Juneau who uh, give tours of the glacier and where they used to go ice hiking up to the ice falls, they now bring kayaks on the helicopter because, well, it's just a standing lake. And my sons were in the backseat, three and seven years old. And the last line of that story, um, I think Steve Inskeep said, well, if visiting a glacier is on your bucket list, do it now. And I just got so mad. I got so angry that... We have stolen glaciers from my children. We have stolen that majesty in the world. And, and maybe that's a selfish way to, to look at it. Yes, because we're talking about the livelihoods and well-being of billions of people on this planet. But we have to bring it home at some point, right? And the heating waters in Florida, bring it home. Bring it home. Make that Turn that anger into plugging your electric car in. Turn that anger into a solar field. Turn it into just doing what's right for all of us. We have to personalize these issues 
And that's one of the things that I think seafood is so is so well suited to do. It, it is that action by which our anger, our passions, our concentrations, our affections can be brought home. They can be put on the dinner table in ways that matter to support and sustain conversations that matter, that uplift, and that carry forth the mythologies that we as people have and have written that say, this is what matters to me. This is what matters to you, to us. And... If that isn't the power of dinner, then I don't know what else has the capacity to foment such good in the world. Oh, Martin, you are an evangelist. <laughs> it's so great. Um, I want to wrap this conversation up with a few, a couple of things that you would really exhort our listeners who are all across the country to think about doing as it pertains to sustainable seafood actions that they can make in their own shopping habits, cooking habits, behaviors that you think start to remodel the direction that we're heading in? Sure. First is eat more seafood. The three S's of public health, as uh, my friend and colleague Darius Mosafarian says, wear your seatbelt, don't smoke, and eat seafood. It's that <laughs> important. Just full stop. Uh, just for the positive public health outcomes that comes from reducing red meat consumption and an associated increase of omega-3 rich fatty seafood consumption. It's just, that's it. Don't smoke, wear your seatbelt and eat seafood. So just walk into a store and decide the seafood is what's for dinner, right? I mean, flip the narrative, flip that script. That's a really big part of it. I think so many people feel the need to be given permission to eat seafood. And if I may, you, listener, you have my permission, my, my, my studied permission to eat seafood for dinner tonight and at least one other night this week and every week thereafter. Please do it. When you eat seafood, you know, just ask a few questions. Even if you don't know the answers, just start that conversation. Start the flow of information. And even if the person you're asking doesn't have the information, guess what? At least you've signaled to them that information matters, right? And bottom line is when you're shopping in a grocery store in America, you're pretty much ahead of the game. Most grocery stores in this country, led by leaders like Wegmans, by Whole Foods, by Safeway, the Ahold, I mean, you, you name it, they've done so much work. You've got HEB and Publix, et cetera, that are doing so much very good work to the point where good luck trying to buy unsustainable seafood in those stores to a very, very large degree. So the bottom line is you can trust most of the retailers in this country. So decide that seafood's what's for dinner, go into the store, ask some information, and then trust the, the product that's in front of you. Know that people have done it, uh, good work behind it, and then bring it home and put it in your toaster oven. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just said that. And if, if I'm still on video here, you can see back behind me that of this glorious, glorious kitchen that I am so fortunate to live within, uh, the thing that I use the most is my toaster oven. And I set it to like 275 or 300 degrees. I put some salt on whatever fish I'm using, basically everything except steak fish, like swordfish tuna. Uh, yeah. Salt it. Olive oil. Put it in there. Guess what I have time for? A glass of wine with my wife. Time to cook some brown rice and some broccoli. Actually engage with my kids. Oh, wait, my fish is overcooked. No, it's not. Oh, no, it's not. It's not. It's in a toaster oven. You're cool. You're good. You end up with custard-like delicious fish. Do you have any textural contrast on it? No, but that's 
fine, right? Because the flesh is so moist. It's so delicate. Just the back of a fork pushes it out in that dense, beautiful, convex flake of fish that sort of coats the palate with all that gelatinous richness, that mashed potato, buttery, salt fragrant glory of the sea just punches us in the face. And we're just like, Aphrodite, thank you. You know, and you're like, this is good. This is good. And yeah, and it's easy. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Bart. You are the best. Thank you, Louisa. I'm going to thank you. I'm going to ask you to let us know when the next book is coming out and keep us in mind for everything you do. And I just want a personal note to you. So I am now, I have just joined the NOAA Stellwagen Bank Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I wrote up my application, because, you know, I'm not a professional anything. um, And I said, well, you know, part of their issue is that they need to communicate to the public why NOAA makes some of the decisions that it does. And they also need to be challenged by the public for the decisions that NOAA makes. And I said to them, you know, I think I'm pretty good at that. I've learned a lot about the various stakeholders in the fishing world. I realize that a lot of what I've learned has come from listening to you. Oh, no. So, Well, thank you. Well, I, I will extend some praise back to you. You have created such a an amazing position for yourself as a nucleus for so many of these conversations that are happening that seem so disparate. Uh, but you've Thank always you. had such a, a passion and a sixth sense for how these things are all interconnected. And I really love what you what you said there that you know Noah, the government needs our response. Yeah, yeah, it needs our <laughs> our attentions. Why? Yeah, because ultimately, food systems are a function of democracy. You know, they are a function of what a community, what a culture wants our relationship with our planet to be and what we want to get in return from it. And, you know, in that way, I, you have done such a great job at oh, thank you. expanding, but democratizing access to this conversation. And if this part makes it into the final cut of our time together here today, which I hope it does, <laughs> so I can sing your praises to everybody, I'd say that just think You're about sweet. your food dollars as a democratic undertaking. You know, and that, that we are voting for what we want our communities and our culture and our people and our places to be and to look like. So thanks for this. Louisa. Thank you. Thank you. This is just great. Well, thank you, Louise. I appreciate you as always you. for being so thank well uh, prepared and asking great questions. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.